Previously on the British Broadcasting Century podcast. In 1922 and 1923, Britain listens to the BBC. Well, bits of it do. But British ears also listen to the last days of 2MT Riddle in Essex. And what's that from Europe? Well, it's a very popular radio station that's been there all along. We've just never really mentioned it before. Last time we brought you the hugely influential concerts from the Covent Garden Opera House, Britain's first outside broadcast, but just as influential, other concerts. The Dutch concerts. Yes, this time PCGG in Holland. The work of Hanzo Idzerda. Who he? Well, Gordon Bathgate will be joining us to tell us all about this radio pioneer. Really, the Dutch Marconi. Gordon Bathgate is an author, radio history enthusiast. His book is Radio Broadcasting, A History of the Airwaves. I suggest you buy it and read it. But first, hear Gordon as our guest, as we go beyond Britain on the non-British broadcasting century. Hello, hello. This is Paul Carenza calling... Holland. Hello, hello. Hope you're doing well. Paul here, you there. March 2022, as I record this, in this British broadcasting centenary year. But yes, on this episode, uh, some non-British broadcasting, although it would have been British listening, because at the time, if you had a radio set in Britain, especially one of good quality and ideally in England rather than beyond into the nations, you would be able to hear the Dutch concerts on PCGG from The Hague, largely thanks to Hanzo Idzerda. So at the end of last episode, I did say we'd be heading to Birmingham and Manchester stations for an episode or two, and we will next time. But for now, we're going to go a little bit further afield and a little bit back in time to Holland. So this episode, a little different. We're not going to have the familiar names of John Reith and Arthur Burroughs and Peter Eckersley quite so much. Instead, someone we probably should have mentioned a lot earlier, although we have been rather focused on Great Britain and its own story of broadcasting. It's a different episode as well, though, because it's more interview on this one and less of me. It's partly because Gordon Bathgate and I had such a nice long chat uh, that I might as well just give you all of that, really. I will crop up now and then, and I'll also be offering you some FMs and some AMs, your first-hand memories that you've emailed me, paul at paulcarenza.com, and an airwave memory from Paula Goddard. So we'll be rewinding from where we are currently in our timeline of January 1923 to four years earlier, even before Ditcham and Round were making their long-range transmissions. See episode one and two for details. There were experimental sounds on the ether in Holland. We're now welcome to the podcast. An author and a radio enthusiast, I'm sensing. Gordon Markgate, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Uh, not bad. Great, great to be here. Listen, to, a regular listener to the podcast. Oh well, we should have included that in the uh, you know author, radio enthusiast, and indeed listener to the podcast. There, yeah. you know, there aren't many of those about nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now I, I've uh, yeah, so I saw your name as uh, someone who'd liked the thing on Facebook, but then mm-hmm. I thought I know that name, and sure yeah. enough, I'd seen your name as author of Radio Broadcasting: A History of the Airwaves, which yeah. Is, Fairly recent, isn't it? Was it last year that was out? I delivered the manuscript to the publisher just um, before the uh, pandemic struck, so uh, so it wasn't exactly the ideal time to um, launch the book. But well, it it worked anyway, or it seemed to work anyway. So it seems to be, have been reasonably successful as history books go. You know, it's a fantastic read. Radio broadcasting history of the airwaves. We we could zoom in on any part of it. 
Well, I know the podcast is called The British Broadcasting Century, but uh, I'm going to actually zoom in on one particular person who was Dutch, but of course his uh, programmes were receivable in Britain for in the early 20s. And it's a guy called Hanzo Idzerde, who is probably the, the Dutch equivalent to uh, Marconi. And in, indeed, his career kind of echoes that of uh, Marconi as well, because uh, he started off developing uh, radio valves and eventually started his own concerts and his own uh, radio program. He started working for the German firm Siemens and Schuckert in Amsterdam. And in 1913, he moved his family to Skavenigan. And then that's when he started up his own company, which was called technical business wireless. So he sets himself up as an independent consultant for the application of electricity in every area. And his name, his main client is the Dutch Army and Navy. Now, uh, radio is still mainly used for ship communication at this time. Uh, but during the First World War, he designed and built equipment for the Dutch government to help them monitor the movement of zeppelins. He then actually started to develop his own um, radio valve, and he moved into radio that way. Wow. I'd known of him as someone who put on concerts on air. But like mm. Marconi, he was, you know, making stuff, engineer, in innovator, business, yeah. an all-rounder, really. Yeah, definitely. He was, he was definitely... Um, he was he was a scientist, and it was his scientific curiosity that uh, eventually was his downfall. He partnered up with uh, Philips, the Dutch electronics firm. He, they agreed to actually develop his his own valve. Uh, it did rather well. Uh, in the first year, Philips agreed to manufacture his valves, provided uh, he would buy at least 180 of them in a year. So when production began in 1918. He actually sold 1,200, so it was a big success. In 1919, which is the era we talked about at the very start of this podcast, about 40 episodes ago, Ditcham and Round of Britain's Marconi Company were experimenting with long-range radio transmissions of the human voice. At the same time, Hanzo Idzerda was in Holland doing similar. He invented the triode IDZ lamp. IDZ which could send and receive wireless telephony, that is, the human voice. I could tell you what was uh, unusual about it and what improved it, but uh, it's, it's all rather technical and probably very boring. But it, it basically did actually revolutionise radio broadcasting. Uh, that was his problem. He, he was a perfectionist and he, his radios that he actually um, developed were of a high standard. And a lot of the time, if you were listening to the, the transmissions of his own station, if you were listening on a cheaper set, it wasn't as good. So his broadcasts were tuned to receive perfectly his um, transmissions from his radios. So that was it. But uh, his radio station was called PCGG. That came from a, a one-off transmission in 1919. And it was going to be just a one-off musical program called Swari Musical. So as you can guess, it was a a musical soiree <laughs> and uh, it was transmitted actually from his own home in the hague and uh, it was transmitted between 8 and 11th on uh, the 6th of november of 1919 and he utilized the radio transmitter that he had designed and built himself and he just played a few records and it was uh, actually his uh, colleagues in phillips that had actually sponsored the program and it was a big success really it basically uh, 
was encouraged to make regular programs after that. His broadcast contained music, he played records, organised live concerts, and the transmission wasn't one way only. He'd answer questions from listeners as well, technical questions. And at some point, according to his daughter and son, even aired a regular children's hour on a Sunday afternoon. So with uh, funny stories that he tried out on his children before reading them to his listeners. So as you can see, it has a lot of echoes with the children's hours on BBC. He started off saying he's like a Marconi. He's also a bit like a Peter Eckersley and a bit of an Arthur Burroughs role. There's a bit of every element that really you get in the early BBC. He's doing it first. And don't forget, the first broadcast is my one-man play and on tour this year. We start on February the 2nd in Surbiton. We conclude on November the 14th in central London. The link is in the show notes. Come and see us. Well, I say us. It's me. It's one person. And maybe you. A lot of British people, they tune in in their hundreds to the, to the Sunday concerts. If your radio set could pick up the Hague Sunday afternoon concerts on 280 kilohertz, then it was a good receiver. Uh, they were also broadcast on Monday and Thursday evenings and announcements were made in Dutch, French and English. So it, it definitely was aimed for an international audience. And he, he started off these uh, series of uh, Sunday afternoon concerts in 1921. Uh, it's called the Courthouse Concerts and uh, this was from a venue with the same name in Skavenigan. And uh, the English wireless magazine collected money from fans in the UK and Zerda received letters of support, special requests, and uh, even some cake from his fans. <laughs> they sent him cake. So uh, his international success grows and the English, the Daily Mail sponsors Zerda to make uh, English broadcasts, especially for UK listeners. So this is the, the, the British Daily Mail then sponsoring a radio station in a different country. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, as I say, his career did echo uh, Marconi because, you know, the Chelmsford concerts with Dame Nellie Melba, he had his own uh, particular version of that when he persuaded the famous Australian singer Lily Paling to perform. Uh, but it wasn't a great experience for him because the diva had so many demands about things. You know, you know like how some rock bands want to uh, order blue jellies or whatever in the rider. She demanded so much things like musical accompaniment, accommodation, etc. that uh, Edzarda felt he needed a, a week's rest afterwards after the concert just to recover. It, it sounds a bit like Nellie Melba, I think, had a few similar... You know, she had a half-cooked chicken and... Um, uh, yeah, unleavened bread, I think it was, wasn't it? Right, so it's, it's clearly an Australian soprano thing. But... Yeah. Um, the business model for his company, Envery Netherlands Radio Industry, was unrealistic. The quality of his radios, as I said earlier, and the technical equipment was so high that only rich customers could really afford to buy his products. And uh, the special FM modulation technique that he transmits with didn't actually work well with the cheaper sets of competitors. And uh, they, were, they were more suitable for an AM signal. So then his major partner, Philips, joins forces with his rival, NSF, for manufacturing lamps and receivers. And the deal quickly turned sour. He got into financial difficulties and his license was withdrawn in 1924. And he was declared bankrupt a month later. But that didn't deter him. He actually started up another company called NV Zerda Radio and resumed broadcasting. But unfortunately, he was unable to secure a license with sufficient power and was restricted to nighttime broadcasts only. This made it difficult to attract sponsorship and made the enterprise fairly unviable. And then 
he manages to hang on till May 1935, and the finally the curtain finally draws on the last of his radioactivities. All his equipment was sold off at a public sale, and uh, what was left was given to the Dutch Radio Museum. And after the bankruptcy, Edzerda moves to uh, Skibbergen, where he starts running a guest house with his family. And uh, that was the last of the time we heard of uh, Edzerda in the radio sphere. But um, he did die some years later under mysterious circumstances. Do we know anything more about these mysterious circumstances? Well, he was in his home. He, he stayed in Skibbergen. And apparently the Germans built a launcher for their V-2 rockets very near there. So uh, when a rocket crashes just after takeoff on November the 2nd, 1944, Hanso decides to take a look. His uh, old scientific curiosity comes to the fore. He encounters some um, soldiers who order him to leave. However, he returns shortly afterwards. And uh, this time they're not so accommodating and they, they, they capture him and uh, take him back to uh, their, quarter, uh, their headquarters, and he's found with electrical components from the rocket in his possession. So he was arrested as a spy and uh, executed the day after. Now, um, his family members remained uncertain of his demise until much later. His body was eventually discovered in 1946, and he was given a proper burial in The Hague. Now, you could say, was it really scientific curiosity that led to his death, or maybe something a bit more covert because apparently flowers from the Dutch resistance were found on his grave. So uh, that kind of gives the impression that Idzada was uh, active in the resistance. It's obviously a, a very, you know, a sad end for someone who was so influential to, in those early years, uh, very formative years of radio, um, mm -hmm. but not only the very end of his life, but by the sounds of it, yeah, the bankruptcy, the, um, and all of those, elements that show that the big problem of radio is we still know today how do you pay for it we still have this issue about license yeah. fees versus advertising versus sponsorship from daily mail or whoever it might be and when that dries up even the greatest pioneers unfortunately it failed i suppose definitely yeah yeah it was it so it's, it was a sad end to it really you know wow it's quite a tale and um at, at the point we're at in our in the podcast at the minute you know we're telling it chronologically BBC just started, but at that point, then British listeners could hear the BBC, and that was seemed to be taking over the airwaves in Britain. But they could also hear these Dutch concerts as well, couldn't they? Yeah, definitely. There was quite a few uh, European broadcasters. I think uh, there was some kind of well, the Daily Mail again sponsored some kind of fashion talk from the top of the Eiffel Tower, and that was heard in um, the UK as well. That led on to um, the development of um, the International Broadcasting Company, but that's much later on in the timeline. In 1925, Selfridges in London sponsored an Eiffel Tower broadcast in Paris, the first foray into radio by Mr. Leonard Plug, who would start up the International Broadcasting Company right under the BBC's nose. More on this in the book Radio Broadcasting by Gordon Bathgate, to whom we now speak. Do you think then as well, with the Sunday concerts, it makes me wonder, we haven't quite got to this point on the podcast yet, but when Reith started to say about Reith Sundays, basically broadcast almost nothing apart from some light classical music and some hymns and a Sunday service, yeah. or, or even not broadcasting anything so people can go to the Sunday service in their own churches. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, pirate radio starts to come in from Radio Normandy, Radio Luxembourg. But these Sunday concerts from Europe seem to be starting that pirate radio trend before there was pirate radio perhaps definitely definitely i do programs for caroline flashback 
uh, radio program. So that's uh, a little thing, you know. That's my, that's my little link to uh, pirate radio. <laughs> I think they got the license, Caroline. Yeah, they, it's uh, it's totally licensed now. So uh, it's actually heard on. Um, on digital in some areas as well now they, they, they certainly the flashback services and uh, the main services got the uh, 648 kilohertz which was the old bbc world service frequency as well so they are broadcasting regularly now but it's all totally licensed and uh, although they still got the ship and they still broadcast every month type of thing you know for most part the fun of it when it's legit that's definitely <laughs> More from Gordon in a mo, but first, time for some AMs and FMs, some airwave memories and first-hand memories from you. We'll pick up the story again in just a moment. We've not had, though, FMs or AMs for quite some time. Your AMs are your airwave memories, your classic moments of listening to broadcasting in the olden days when you were far younger. And your first-hand memories are when you saw broadcasting in action and what that was like. For example, this from John Petty. He went to see two of the lost Hancock's Half Hours being recorded up at the BBC, massively impressed by the Art Deco theatre and studio, and also surprised how the actors really stayed in character throughout the night, even during the fluffs and so on. Fun to see the lady doing the sound effects using real doors. Also surprised, John says, that it wasn't lots of mics, but one mic, like a stand-up show, where the characters walk up to it, do their part, or gather around it like it's one conversation. Maybe they were staying true to the original recordings. Or indeed, are all radio drama and comedy shows made this way? I think more often than not, they are spread out nowadays, partly for COVID reasons, but actually they're so spread out, they're done from home, I think, a lot of the time. Radio producer Jeff Jean has dropped us a line. Jeff's working across many shows right now. But his memories include, well, where to start, he says. He did six months at Pebble Mill, which really had a magical feel about it. He says, I've made shows at TV Centre, PM, The Mailbox, Broadcasting House, Leicester Square, Golden Square. Every building has its own energy, Jeff says. And he says he finds it quite wonderful and weird producing in the same room that he's listened to so many great shows from. And from America, Sarah Ann Mass has been in touch, who said, Hubby and I went to a recording of Bleak Expectations. A lot of fun. What struck me is that it was largely just like watching a play reading. We also went to the pub after where we met one of the producers. Years later, here in LA, we became friends with the actor who played Harry Biscuit, the brilliant James Backman. Ah, oh, James Backman is fantastic. Thank you, Sarah. If you have any airwave memories or first-hand memories yourself of when you saw broadcasting in action, you can email me, paul at paulcarenza.com, or you can send a recording, an actual audio clip, just like this one from broadcasting fan Paula Goddard. Hello, this is Paula Goddard, who you might remember had a brief moment of fame on the podcast in Series 1, when my article on the chimes of Big Ben being broadcast for the first time was mentioned, even down to the workman's comments being picked up by the microphone. My first-hand memory is being interviewed on the radio for the first time. This was in way back 1995 with Radio 5 Live as the local and the then national papers have picked up that I was running an adult education evening class on, of all things, tea tasting. For some reason, this was thought unusual. I do actually do wine tasting now. I've still got the recording of what I said and what they said on a cassette tape. Remember those? Somewhere. The interview was conducted down the telephone line, with me sitting in my front room in Kent, and the radio presenters, two of them, I can't remember who they were. They were in London somewhere. I had been practising my answers with my other half for some days beforehand, but I was still nervous. But once I got talking about my favourite subject of tea, 
then all was really well. Uh, I don't think the interview got me any more enrolments for my evening class itself, but I sure needed a cup of tea afterwards to steady my nerves. As for Paula's wine tasting, find out more at paulagoddard.com. Do get in touch with your AMs and FMs. Email paul at paulcarenza.com. That's P-A-U-L-K-E-R-E-N-S-A dot com. And you could be on a future episode with your airwave memories and first-hand memories. Now back to Gordon Bathgate. And I asked him what led to the creation of his new book, Radio Broadcasting, A History of the Airwaves. The book came about because one of the publishers scouts or authors or had actually read one of my previous books which was self-published so they thought it would be a good idea to have a book of their own so they they approached me and thought uh, it's a good idea to to launch a book for, to cover the uh, anniversary because it's uh, the, the big anniversary really you know i hope that the radio yeah. story will won't vanish you know on november 14th 2022 mm-hmm. because then in theory you have the 100th anniversary of Savoy Hill and the 100th anniversary of um, the first opera concert and all these yeah. sorts of things so hopefully they'll they'll keep on coming what's your history then with with radio what's what's led you to radio as a as an I'd, I'd always been um, ever since I was a kid really I remember my mother and father used to have one of these uh, old radiograms in the uh, the living room or lounge, as they used to call it. And I uh, used to listen to the radio all the time. But when I was young, I used to just twiddle the knob and there was all these strange whistling and whooping and things. Eventually, uh, much to their relief, I noticed that if I actually settled on one thing, I could hear music and and voices especially. Um, It was the music that really got me because uh, I've been a fan of music since then really but uh, I, I did realize that radio could be more than just a conduit for music but when uh, I was off sick one day I was in bed and my mother uh, took through the radio so I could listen to it and I was listening to this play and of course the play if I remember rightly um, it's the ideal one for radio because it, it was about a couple of people stuck down a mine didn't need uh, <laughs> it didn't need any scenery did it really yeah, you just yeah. in your imagination and it was just the perfect one. It, it, it transfixed me from then on. Oh, that's the plot of the first play written for radio, a comedy of danger by Richard Hughes. But unless Gordon was a child in 1924, it must have been a later version of the play. It was performed again in 1925, 1930, 32, 33, 56, 73, 74, and 1982. From then on, it wasn't just music I'd listen to, it was uh, anything really. I must admit, um, my early days, I, I did like things like The Navy Lark and The Clitheroe Kid. And uh, Kenny Everett was my all-time hero. I used to listen to his programs on a Saturday and Sunday when he was on Radio 1. And uh, I used to, he was one guy that I, I used to like him more than the music. So that was what got me into radio. And I thought... One day I'd like to be a DJ, and um, well, I'm still hoping. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's it's one of those things, isn't it, Ray? That when you get an, an enthusiast behind it, it doesn't go away. That sort of magic you get from the no. radio. It's you Kenny Everett. You know, it's a while ago now, but that's still you still remember those moments of listening to it. And uh, definitely, I think his highlight, uh, the highlight of his BBC career was the um, came back to Radio One after being sacked in 1973. He only did about 13 programmes, but uh, I've still got all of them in tape. And it's just fantastic to listen to because he, 
he was uh, recording them in Wales, and it was just it, it was just sheer perfection. It still is. It's, they, they were my favourite radio programmes of all time. Really, his thirteen episodes from the, the wireless Welsh wizard. Well, thank you for, for shining a light for us on, on uh, the Dutch contribution. Uh, we'll mention your book once again, Radio Broadcasting. Available from all good outlets and some disreputable ones as well. Thank you for joining us. And um, yeah, if, if other elements of radio history come up that you want to tell us about, I hope you can come back on the podcast and, and share them with us. Sure, anytime. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you for listening. Next time we're going to be back in England, not to London of 2LO. We're going to loiter in Birmingham and Manchester for a bit and look at those pioneering radio stations of early 1923. Plus, we'll be chatting to Jude Montague. She's the granddaughter of a radio pioneer of Sidney Wright, who was one of the musicians of 2ZY in Manchester. Lots of grandchildren of pioneers coming up with her and Justin Webb. Had a great chat with him recently. Talked about his career, uh, his new book, and the fact that his grandfather, Leonard Crocombe, was the first editor of the Radio Times and a broadcaster back in the day, which Justin Webb didn't know. Yes, he didn't know that his grandfather was actually broadcasting in 1923 on the BBC. So you can watch that video. For now, it's available to our Patreon superheroes. That's the, the second level on, on Patreon. Your entry-level superstars get uh, writings and behind-the-scenes text-based updates for your contributions to the podcast. But if you support on Patreon for the, the second level of your superheroes, you get videos as well, and I think a free book, last time I checked. Chip in there, it all supports the show, or indeed, you can go to coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com, to just essentially buy me a cup of coffee and get nothing in return, apart from my everlasting thanks. It all helps keep the wheels turning and the pods casting. Anyway, it's great that we're in touch with lots of grandchildren of these pioneers. Jude Montague, who we'll hear from next time. David Jervis, the grandson of Captain Round. Hello, David. David Edgar, the playwright. His grandfather, Percy Edgar, was station director of the Birmingham station, and we'll be hearing a lot more from Percy Edgar on the next episode of the podcast. That original voice brought back to us. If you're the grandchild of a radio pioneer, why not get in touch? Paul at paulcarenza.com. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. Find us on social media at BB Century, but do not be fooled by the BBC part. We're not made or endorsed by the present-day BBC. We are a one-man band. So do review us where you found us, Apple Podcasts and the like. That all helps, and do share our episodes on your Facebooks and Twitters and TikToks and MySpaces and Friends Reunited's. <clears throat> Stay informed, educated, entertained and well and join us next time as we hear the actual pioneer voices from the Birmingham station next time on the British Broadcasting Century. <laughs>